Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. Glad to have you all here, everyone, for our penultimate uh, surugim. Now I was about to say shtisel. Um Our penultimate surugim, uh session. I'm not sure. It's been, I think, over a year at this point, right? I think we started like Chagim last year. We started so after the Chagim last year. Yeah. It's pretty wild. Um, so we are almost there. I hope all the uh, Los Angeles people made it through Ida okay. And uh, yeah. <laughs> we're now, but it's good to be back. Uh, change of plans a little for what we initially had intended of finishing before the Chagim, but now we're post Chagim, and it means we all get to see each other again, which is which is great. Um, so. The topic, you know, I thought was there wasn't there weren't so many, I guess, more like halakhic topics. Um, though I'm sure we might touch on other things today as we're as we're talking. But one that came up, which was related to things that we've discussed before, but not directly the same as things we've connected before, was uh, was the status of a woman who has just given birth. And we see this in the episode with Yifatz, where, you know, um, Amir comes back from the desert and he, uh, you know, comes and is so excited and Yifat comes and he kind of goes to give her a hug. And she's like, I don't think you're allowed to do that, um, which is true, which is true, because the Torah at the very beginning of Parshat Tazria talks about the status of a woman who has given birth um, to a boy and then to a girl that for seven days she's in a sort of pseudo-nida state. It's different. It's, you know, you'll let it. She's a, you haven't given birth, but it's similar in that it's seven days of impurity and then 33 days of purity, seemingly even if she's still bleeding. And then for a daughter, it's doubled, um, 14 days and then 66 days. Uh and what we were looking at a little bit earlier with the New Orleans group is some of the sources of sort of how the halacha around Yoledet has developed to where, similar to other cases where it's sort of like these different categories of women's uh, states, whether it's bleeding during the regular monthly cycle time or unusual bleeding, or now throw into the mixed childbirth, you know, theoretically from the Torah, there's different counts and different cycles and different, you know, rules for each of these. And by the times of the Talmud, they're like, this is too complicated. Um, it's hard for people to keep track of different rules for different counts and so forth, different types of blood. How do you know that it's this type of blood and not that type of blood? And they used to have, you know, you'd go ask experts and so forth, of, to, you know, just to confirm, oh, this is, you know, childbirth blood and not, you know, unusual bleeding blood. So they said, you know, we're just going to treat everything with the same rules, regardless of the cause of bleeding and um, basically meaning whether it's for childbirth or monthly cycle or other cases, you know, that a woman's considered to be sort of in a state of nida or of ritual impurity for as long as she's still actively bleeding. And then when she is no longer actively bleeding, you do a, what's called a hefsek tahara, a uh, sort of a, a check to make sure that there's no more bleeding and then seven days of checking daily to make sure that you're no longer bleeding and then go to the mikvah and then, and then you're, uh, you know, free. Um, you are tahor or tahara as it would be in this case. But, <laughs> um, 
Yeah, Debbie and Steve. So a couple of things. So number one, is that difference still in place for having a female child or a male child? <clears throat> so great question. So theoretically, yes. Uh-huh. Practically, okay. no. So so what we do, right, I, I mentioned, and this was actually a thing that I wasn't really aware of until I like looked earlier today. There's like 3366, what's the deal with them? From the Taurus count, those are actually, you're not impure during those days. You're, you are pure. It's called Dom Tohar. It's pure blood. And even if you're bleeding, you're actually, you know, in a state of purity, right? I think this idea of Dom Tohar is there's an expectation that you might be bleeding because you might be bleeding. Um, you're not allowed to go into the temple or eat like hectic. <laughs> you can't eat, you know, truma. Um, but aside from that, there's not actually so such significant practical ramifications. Um, and even beyond that, also if you're having sex with your partner during that time and you bleed from the Taurus perspective, like you don't, you're actually not time A because there's an expectation that you just had, you know, you've just had given birth. You're likely to be bleeding. It's okay. Again, that's theoretical, but not practically how it was done. Um, so the seven days, 14 days is still in effect, though I think it's probably pretty unusual for a woman who has a uterine birth to be able, you know, to have passed seven clean days within 14 days from childbirth, right? I would think that's pretty unusual. Um, maybe not, but so, the, yeah, so you would at least wait 14 days. Um, vaginal birth, yeah. So, so um, the other piece of this is, is that, you know, when we think about, you know, the incidence of, you know, you know, postpartum depression, mm-hmm. I'm sure that not being able to hug your spouse um, can't make that any better. Yeah. And that's actually what we were going to talk about primarily here is, you know, okay, there's the halakhic angle of the rules of Nida and so forth, but exactly. Um, the... Yes, thank you. That all birth is uterine. Uh, yes, got that. <laughs> but I was trying to, you know, think of an alternative term. And uh, yeah, let's go with vaginal because it's different rules apply for C-sections. Um, but yes, the postpartum pieces are big pieces. You know, we not actually in this class. In the Stissel class, we had talked about um, husbands giving giving supportive touch during childbirth, and that's a whole conversation because a woman doesn't enter the state of nida until at some point during active labor, and there's a little bit of conversation about when exactly that is, but there's still you know, conversation about the husband potentially giving, uh, giving supportive touch during childbirth. This is different, though, when it comes to you know, postpartum, where she is in a state of nida, and you know, from those rules, the husband can't touch her. Now, it seems like with her and Amir, they don't make a big deal of it. She's just kind of like, I don't think you're allowed to touch me. And he's like, oh yeah, you're right. But you can imagine, I'm sure people are aware and have perhaps even experienced many cases in which um, that, you know, spousal touch is exactly what you're looking for. That supportive touch, not just during the birth, but after the birth. Um, And in that way, this makes it really hard or it can make it really hard. Well, so then um, I'm just going to say, what's the answer then? Because this seems really kind of, you know, against our Jewish values of care and all that, because, um, I mean, how do you resolve that issue that there's a, such a, uh, it's a conflict between 
the halacha and what probably is better for the woman. Although, I mean, right. I'm sure she might be really angry at the man, you know, because she had a really difficult, you know, childbirth. I get that. But still, um, most women would like to have some cuddling and comfort from their husband. Yeah. So um, it's actually interesting that you say that. But I was looking at there's different midrashim about why these different rules and things. And sometimes there is this idea that like if a woman during childbirth will yell and be like, I don't want ever to see my husband again. And, and, um, and sort of like you know, that that's not a, you know, something that we, whatever, that, that's a whole conversation about the reasons for the counts that, that um, one of the Midrashim touches on, actually it's in the Gemara. But um, I mean, Rabbi Schatz chatted me in here to say, talk about Rabbi Linzer. So Rabbi Linzer, my, my Shiva has written, but specifically, I believe about during labor. I don't think he's talked about post after the facts. No, because, you know, so there are, you know, cases during labor in which, um, you know, in which the the husband can give supportive touch. It does say in the Shulchan Arach, um, and let me just find this source to, um, just looking here. So in the Shulchan Arach, actually, maybe I'll, I can just share my screen and show you this. Oh, thank you, Rabbi Shabbos. So Shulchan Aruch in, uh, in Yeridea, it says, you know, if the wife is in a state of nida, actually we'll just skip 15 and go to 16. If a woman is sick and is in a state of nida, her husband cannot touch her to take care of her, such as getting her up out of bed and helping her to lie down. And then the Ramah adds, but there are those who say that if she doesn't have anyone else to take care of her, this is all, this is all permissible. And this is our practice if she is really in need of her husband's support. So at least for Ashkenazi Jews who followed the Ramah, this is a pretty massive leniency because, you know, if she is in need specifically of her husband's support because she is a chola, she is sick, I think you can certainly make an argument that a woman dealing with postpartum emotions and all everything <laughs> postpartum could be in this case where she specifically needs her husband's support. Um, so I am sure that there are those who make, who, who would say, yeah, you know, you can rely on this Ramah and say, you know, you don't want to be having touch that's beyond what feels like it's necessary, but he can give that kind of supportive touch even after childbirth. Anything you want to add Rabbi Schatz or anyone else? No, I mean, I, I think there are certain, there are certain pieces here that, um, not to add, just to kind of comment on the, the liberal world, so to speak, um, that obviously there liberals. are... What? The new crazy liberals. Yeah, crazy. Um, though everyone's about to agree with me. So um, the the fact that that this piece comes up in the Shulchan Aruch as, you know, we call it the gloss, but ultimately it really is the Ashkenazi opinion. And so even those who choose to be stringent on the law... If you're Ashkenazi, that's also stringent, right? Like you're, you are, you are going according to the Ashkenazi opinion. So it's not any kind of leniency um, for you if you're Ashkenazi. And I think that there's, there is um, a part of this that is just common sense. Like if your wife is in need of your support and that's a hug or that's a hand or that's, you know, a foot rub, I don't know, like something, something that is supportive, I think 
anyone would suggest that that is more important than putting your partner into a state of depression or a state of loneliness or a state of pain um, that, that because as Roy Pronick mentioned a few minutes ago, it's a very different state of Nita, even if we're using the same word. Um, and those of you who took the, the Hilcho Nita class with, with me that was taught by Ramanit Sarah Wilkenfeld and Ramanit Leasarna, we talked a little bit about how this is a different state of Nita than, um, than menstrual bleeding is uh, every month. So I think that that's, that's where this kind of comes into play in terms of Debbie's question, which is like life experience and that which is needed is so much more important than what the letter of the law says um, which is why I, I would want to think the remark comes in and says, that's lovely. And if she needs it, like she needs it and you should give her that support. Um, and that's what I would say to anybody, uh, even people practicing the laws of Nita very strictly. I would say if your wife, especially if it's postpartum depression, right? Like, which can be very serious, um, that I, I would suggest to anybody that they go to any lengths, um, to be supportive, uh, even if that means physical touch. Okay, so, I mean, and I think, yeah, so largely I would agree with Rabbi Schatz there. You know, I would say, you know, there is certainly a distinction between touch and, you know, sexual touching, which I think we talked about this also a little bit earlier. I think doctors typically recommend like six weeks post, um, you know, post-birth for before, you know, a woman should be having sexual, you know, should be actively engaged in sex. So, a week and two weeks doesn't seem like it's a huge thing. I think that's probably normal anyway. But but yeah, when it comes to just supportive touch, non-sexual touch and so forth, it seems like that Rama is a, uh, you know. But at the very same time, popular. when we're talking about Nita, just, just to make sure that everyone's clear, when we're talking about Nita, like as a status, no touch is permitted. It doesn't matter if it's sexual or not. So, right. so. Yeah, I I agree with you. I think that pe- at least the people that I've known who have given birth um, are not, you know, rushing back into the bedroom in any kind of sexual acts in the first week or two. However, I don't think that that's what they're, I don't think that that's, I don't think that's the main question, right? I think that the main yeah. question is touch in general. Um, and there are certain, I mean, Debbie's one of the doctors on this call who can who can talk to this, but I know that there are also ways in which during childbirth that to ease the pain of labor that there are certain ways in which a partner male or female can be supportive to the woman giving birth um and some might be seen as sexual and others might be just seen as like you know pressure points on your palm or on the on your back or whatever and and i think that's where rob linzer's um uh i guess you could call it chuva his 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 kind of his answer to a to a question um, comes into play in what I put into the chat because he's, he's deeming it supportive as a po- whether or not uh, like outside of a hospital room, outside of childbirth, it would be deemed as something different. It's being deemed as supportive touch and supportive um, guidance from a partner. So I think that that's where, that's where this like using the word Nita is, can be confusing because Nita in general or non-general, in, in most of our cases that we're talking about Nita, it means just no touch whatsoever. Here, we're kind of categorizing the different aspects of touch. Is that fair, Brian Parner? Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
I wanted to also get to Norm's, Norman's question about uh, the husband and touching the child, which is a good one. I actually had just seen something. What was that? It was Rachel's question. Norm just Sorry, Rachel's question. Sorry, Rachel's question. Oh, here it is. I found from, um, yeah. So, I mean, I actually found from yoatsots.org. I saw this earlier um, about this, that, you know, about what. what a yoatset is? A yoatset is a... I mean, literally, Yoetzet is means like a female Yoetz advisor, but um, typically Yoetzot are Yoetzot halacha are like women who serve as spirit as not well halachic, you know, guides. Um, so often in you know Orthodox communities where there, where there won't be women rabbis, but there might be a Yoetzet, a woman who is um, you know asked certain questions. One, yeah, Josh is one AKJ in New York. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think the question is, is yoatzot.org connected specifically with any institution of, yo, you know, that trains yoatzot halacha? That I don't know. I don't actually know who yoatzot.org is. Um, but it looks like, oh, it is from, um, oh, it's from Jerusalem. It's from the shot. Oh, from Nishmat. That's from Nishmat. Okay. Which is a, you know, it's a modern Orthodox uh, center for for women. And I, you know, we talked about sort of the role of the husband, but it it seems to indicate that a woman, right, a woman can certainly be, you know, touching the baby during the birth process is an interesting question. Certainly immediately following the birth, right, would be, you know, if a nurse is there and a nurse sort of like brings the baby to the father, that would certainly be okay. Actually physically touching the baby during the birth, though, I would think the answer might, well, my thought would be no. Why? No. Why? They don't have a status of Nita. The baby does not have a status of Nita. No, it's totally fine. I mean, I don't know. I, I, I have no idea why. Like, the status of Nita does not. So, there, so here's this. I'm putting up here what it said about the husband husband in the delivery room. Um, it says, the growing trend for the husband to serve as his wife's labor coach presents certain halachic difficulties. First, a woman in active childbirth, I say, has the status of nida, right? Once she's actively giving birth. Um, therefore, physical contact between the couple is prohibited, and the husband may not see his wife undressed. Furthermore, the husband is halachically prohibited from looking directly at his wife's vaginal opening, even when she's not a nida. Uh, due to these concerns, many rabbis forbid the attendance of the husband in the delivery room. There are those who for, permit it with the following stipulations. One, there shouldn't be a mirror for the husband to see the baby emerging. Two, the couple should request that the wife be as covered as possible. Three, the husband should not touch his wife unless no one else is available to help her. Rabbi Shas doesn't like this. I can tell. It was, this is terrible. This is all bad. <laughs> all, I mean, it's not bad, but I just, it's not, it, first of all, this has nothing, has nothing to do with the question, number one. Number two, I, I, I mean, ish. It's about the husband in the delivery room. That's okay. Yeah, that has nothing to do with the question about the baby. But, but I do, I do think that one of the things that we're that we are like encroaching on here is that there, so much of this is the status of the woman and how things have to change to protect the man. Like I've never given birth, but I would assume that it's not super comfortable to be completely covered when you're trying to get a human being out of your body. No, no, not completely no. covered. No, 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 not completely covered. It's just saying she should be reasonably covered. I, oh no, I yeah, yeah. I get, I get it. Um, I think that still reasonably covered even might be more uncomfortable than being able to just you know 
allow your mind to do what it needs to do and not worry about whether or not your husband who you presumably had sex with is going to see your body or not. Um, again, never given birth, just assuming. But I, but I also think that in terms of the baby question, if, if we know that Nita cannot be like contracted, right. By, by anything, right. You, a Torah can't contract Nita. You can't, can't give Nita to a living thing. And therefore you're not going to give Nita to a baby. The, the, the holding of a baby, first of all, the baby's going to be cleaned off. So if we're worried about the blood part of all of this, that's not an issue. The the holding of the baby, I think, has nothing to do with Nita status at all. Um, it's It has much more to do with the husband touching or the partner touching the the woman who just gave birth because she's the one who is actively bleeding. And that's what we're worried about. We're worried about that aspect of things. But I'm thinking about even in regular NIDA cases, you know, there's issues with the wife handing the baby directly to the husband. But that has more to do with implications of, of NIDA. That doesn't have to do with the fact that the baby now has NIDA. No, no, no. The baby is not. No, no, no. For sure. Right. I think that that has much more to do with the fact that during regular, whatever that means, like regular Nita time, right? When a woman is menstruating, that to pass something to their husband might be seen as a normalized sexual act. And therefore the passing of a baby may be also, we talked about this in the Hilcha Nita class as well. Um, but that I don't think that immediately after birth, again, going back to what you said about sex in general post postpartum i don't think that that would be an issue in terms of passing the baby to to the partner i don't think i i can't imagine if it does say that's not allowed i'm willing to get angry and be told that i'm wrong um okay debbie or steve and then norm or rachel or both okay, i'm always so- happy to tell you you're wrong by the way so yeah, I, 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 I'm making an assumption, Rachel, but um, a lot of people like to, the partner likes to help the baby come out. Right. And so the baby is not actually out and cleaned up. Right. They're helping guide that baby out. So that's, right. I think, the question. I think right. that's another, that that would be a whole other scenario. And again, according to, to like the the pieces of halakha that are most strict with Nida, the answer there would most likely be no, because at that point, there's a chance that you're touching the mother. Even if you're holding the baby, the baby still has the mother's blood on it. That, that I would assume has more written about it in terms of how that could potentially be problematic. I still personally don't think it's problematic, but I could imagine that that's where the text might pick up issues or or um or problem with it um so so if that's a clarification to rachel's question then thank you and that that would be and then secondly this whole thing about you know like you said about the woman being covered i mean was the woman not uncovered when they conceived the baby like maybe that was the case i mean i don't know but that's a little concerning and you know i just don't understand that so, so the Torah talks talk about Makor Meha, the place, the source of her blood, that a husband should not, a man should not see the sort of the source of her blood during the time that she is in Nida. So that's different when she's not in Nida and when she is in Nida. Well, that's a the reason I'm thinking about this, particularly when it comes to childbirth, is that's like very much, you're like, right, you're like very close to the source of blood. 
And that's what it seems like the Torah is trying to push you away from. Like, I think that, so what Debbie's asking is when you had sex, weren't you aware of her naked body? And the answer, yeah, okay. But again, I think the Torah is okay with the naked body when she, but not at a time of bleeding. And during a time of bleeding is, is, does not want the husband to see his wife I naked specifically at that time. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. Thanks. The other part to your, to your question though, Debbie, is that it's possible that they did have clothes on, right? Like there's, I mean, there's. You're not allowed to. You're not allowed to have, have sex. clothes on? No, you're, so, you're not supposed to have, no. Then sign Ketubo. For another time, we can talk about the different ways that you have sex. Um, but that, I mean, there are, there are, there is a chance clothes or no clothes. There is a chance that in some, in some relationships, right. That based on. <laughs> I'm Debbie and Steve's comment or De- whoever wrote the uh, comment. <laughs> yeah, it's true. That's true. Um, it, for those of you who are just listening, it says, I guess it was lucky that Amir didn't make it in time, solved a lot of issues. That's true. Um, uh, I don't know what I was going to say. Okay. Uh, Rachel and Norm. I just wanted to say that I have seen in labor rooms and delivery rooms and surgical rooms um, the mother or patient partially covered in such a way so that somebody standing near the head or sitting near the head would not see what's going down, what's going on down below. I think in most cases, that's more a concern for that. The patient shouldn't be watching that than that the husband or other birthing assistant or partner shouldn't see it. Yeah. Um, And uh, certainly at least with one of the births that we had, um, I saw whatever there was to see, um, and uh, it, it, it happens in in the first birth that we did. Um, Rachel's obstetrician was also Rebitzman, mm. um, but uh, he wasn't available the second time, so we had a high school classmate of mine. It was, it was one of my life's weirdest experiences. To be rolled into the delivery room on a gurney and have Norm and the OB recognize each other from high school and start talking about their respective classmates and teachers. Uh, What uh, I just want to add for personal perspective. Mm -hmm. I remember thinking that for all that birth is this incredible, wonderful spiritual act where a woman is like God in creating a new person, blah, blah. It's the most physical thing I've ever done. Mm-hmm. Pushing that baby out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that, um, you know, I think one of the things that we, even even just from the production of this show, which I hadn't really thought that I was going to talk about, but I'll, I'll just share it here, that, you know, th- they're taking into consideration who the audience is watching this show, and we don't actually see anything about the birth. All of a sudden, she's in labor. Um, we don't even see her really pushing, which you might see in other medical shows or whatever. I mean, fake, but obviously, you know, trying to show that there is a pushing of a baby out. But all we see is her fully gowned, having pain around labor and then all of a sudden there's a baby 
Um, and, and it is interesting. With beautiful um, spiritual music, you know. With beautiful spiritual music. Played by, what's her name? Uh, I don't no, the, who has the radio show? What's her name? Oh, 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 yes. And the radio show is going on in the back. Yes. And she does look great afterwards. And she has, she has like a five month old, which is also amazing. <laughs> but anyway, um, the, the fact that, the fact that, that, that that isn't present, I think Rachel speaks to your point of like the physicality of it and how, how scared kind of we are in terms of, showing those pieces, whether that's Jewishly or just at the time that it was being um, produced, that that there is a sense of intimacy, rightfully so, around how much effort and physicality is going into a birth. And so I think that to kind of back the rabbis for a second, even though I, I think that most of what they say about birth is um, silly, uh, that to back them for one second, I think there is an element of you know, fear and reverence and um, just overall kind of awe for this moment that men might not necessarily know what to do, right, In back in the time that this was being written. And so there needed to be something written down in the book that the men were going to be reading uh, to know how to act and how to handle the situation they were in. We're lucky that that's not us, Um and obviously some people still use the parameters of what is written down, but I think back in those days, it was something that was scary and amazing and, and unknown uh, to many, to many people going through it. So I do think that in a certain way, the rabbis are being um, helpful uh, to that generation of human. I think it is very clear that there's also no shortage of women who don't understand what's going on. Totally. Yeah. And in those days, um, the, it is clear from lots of things that the rabbis had very, you know, in, in the times of the Talmud and subsequent, that the rabbis had very limited knowledge of human physiology and biology. Yeah. Um, in some cases, they did their best with respect to those. Yeah. In other cases, less so. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I, I would agree with all of that. Any other questions, comments? It's been a long time since we've talked about this show. Anybody have any strong feelings about, about what you're seeing? Um, I'll, just, I'll, I'll answer because Barbara had a question in the chat oh. about, a little bit ago, but about, you know, after birth, can the husband and wife touch each other and so oh. forth? I mean, so, yeah, after birth, again, I mean, us, accepting the, you know, necessary touch that we talked about previously, right, the answer ideally is sort of no, that they, they aren't really touching. That's by the way, why we have even the process, uh, you know, at a, at a bris is you have, right. The mother gives the baby to a female friend who gives the baby to her husband, right. It's sort of, it's done in this way where it's not the mother giving the baby to the father. It's sort of done in this non nida baby passing way. Um, so that is something we hold on to that again, acknowledging the Ramah and what the Ramah says about, you know, husband being able to support his wife when he's the only one who can. Aside from that, it's sort of regular need applies. And so in, right, in theory, they shouldn't be passing the baby back and forth during, for the duration of the time that they're in that state. As we said, you know, the way that the rabbis end up deciding it is basically 
Yoledet, Nida, Zava, all these different categories are all treated the same. So they're all, you know, and basically that however long it takes until she can go, you know, there's seven days without bleeding, they would not be passing the baby back and forth. I, you know, theoretically at least. But babies, like other things, can be put down for a moment and then picked up. Yes, for sure. Oh, that's. Yes. I I guess I was just thinking about new parents and the overwhelmingness of having a child and, you know, your mother-in-law or your mother isn't going to be there the whole time. And the reality, I think the reality is that people do pass the baby and maybe they don't in very orthodox homes. I just, I, you know, I just don't think it's, if you have a baby who's crying (laughs) Then putting the baby down and then somebody else picking it up, it just, to me, it doesn't seem compassionate. Mm-hmm. But also yeah. keep in mind, if right, it's sort of that, if you're the only one who, there who can help right now, then right, it's, those are also the things that are sort of the, like the passing of things back and forth. That, that's kind of like the, somewhat the extensions of Nida. It's not, right, there's, there's a difference between intense, intimate touch and passing something back and forth. So, those are right, exactly. Those are the kinds of things that you might say, you know what, in this case I needed the baby screaming, that you know, right? So you might have sort of rely on more on the leniencies of need at you know, specific need at this point. Um, though often there are other people around. There's the mothers in law or the fathers in law. Maybe. I mean, I think that's what I was just gonna say. I, I think that is an assumption that's unfair. Um that that there are, there are plenty of people who I know who, especially during COVID, right? There, sure. I mean, you're, well, I guess your sister's not a good example, but there are plenty of people during COVID who had babies and didn't have family around and didn't have family who could travel to them. And traditional, you know, halakhically observant or not, they only had the people who were in their home or the people around, you know, in their COVID bubble, whatever that meant at that time. So I, I do, I do think that. I also, again, I'm, Rye Pernick and I are both coming from a place of having never experienced this ourselves, um, but I would assume that it also depends on how present and how um, uh, involved your partner wants to be, right? If you are, if you're the, the person who gave birth, um, then how involved they want to be. And if, if they are the kind of person who wants to hold the baby all the time, then you're probably going to allow that and make that happen in whatever way works with your halakhic observance, whether that, as Norm said, whether that's putting the baby down and then picking it up or you handing the baby to them directly. I think there's also, I cannot imagine, as Haredi as someone might be, I cannot imagine that if the partner wants to be involved in those first few weeks, moments, whatever, of a baby's life, that they're not, that they're absent from that because of halakha. I think you make it work somehow. And then the other side of that is if the partner is uncomfortable or unsure or unable to hold their child, then not for Nita reasons, but for all other reasons, you find other people who can be helpful. So I think that that though this topic is important and in halakha and something that people observe, I also think this topic more so than many others has so much to do with very personal preference and, um, and just life lived and, and experienced. 
Michael, did you want to say something? You were unmuted. So did you want to share something? Yeah, no, it was uh, uh, Josh had asked if we had other comments, and my comment had nothing to do with the NIDA issue. So I'm going That's to fine. leave that alone right you can, now. You are now free to share any comments. Only that I thought the writers were very unfair to the character of Nadi. He suffered enough. I agree. I texted He Rod stole Rod. his roommate's girlfriend. Like, good for you, Azaria. No, 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 no. <laughs> no. He didn't steal. They had broken up. No stealing happened. No stealing. There was no stealing. They had broken up. Nati met her. He fell in love with her. She at least made him feel like she fell in love with him. And then she did the right thing by going to him and telling him and broke Nati's heart. And that is not okay. Any thoughts, Riley Pernick? Anyone else on Azaria's side <laughs> on this one? No. No. What? Of course not. No one is on his side. I don't know. It seemed inevitable that Azaria and Tequila were going to get back together. Who I thought? Inevitable. I thought so. Yeah. Okay. What about those goats? <laughs> Odd storyline. <laughs> yeah, I think somehow this is where I know that Leonard and Rebecca are off camera right now, but this is where I feel like Rebecca's kind of um, interpretive uh, vision of this show would come into play. I think there that- was definitely something there. I mean, that was, but the fact that the goat died, that made me think that the baby wasn't going to survive childbirth. Right. No. The fact that the baby goat ran away and died, I was like, that's not a good sign. But then, no. wasn't it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, just, you don't think that that was just showing him like caring for another being? But he didn't. But the, the being died, though. That's the problem. I know. So, I know. But okay. All right. Debbie and Steve. <laughs> I was. I was. You kind of took a thought from me. I was thinking. You know, with the mirror, he 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 quits the school. And all he's thinking about is, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? What am I going to do? It's all about him. And then he goes out to the goat farm, and now he has to start thinking about other beings, other things that, that are not, not him. And he's inattentive. The goat runs away, and the goat dies. And it's kind of like, you know, yeah, you, you need to start being attentive to it's not just about me anymore. And uh, it, it, it dovetails really nice, nicely with, with, the, with the birth and everything. Um. Yeah, I sorry, I got distracted by Karen's comment, which I don't really understand. So I'm going to get back to you, Karen. Um, yeah, I I I similarly thought that there was some kind of parallel to at least what was going to happen as a for him as a father. But I feel like that shifts when he's in the car, right? When he kind of starts to recognize, oh, this is this is real. Like even even just the fact that he goes after the goat as opposed to just letting it go like wondering what was going to happen to it um you know i think that shows a sense of responsibility i mean not not early enough but it shows a sense of responsibility and and it seems like he's kind of working towards that responsibility to then be like oh i'm going to be a dad i'm going to go um and and make this all and yet he hasn't been present while his wife is in you know pregnancy and far along you know he what? Yeah. He's like, it's ironic that he's uh, sort of like learning how to parent while being totally absent from his very pregnant wife. Yeah. You know? I mean, I think a lot of people don't learn how to parent until they're parenting. So like, then, at least yeah. trying, you know, but yeah. Sure. Uh, do you think the rainbow was a sign also? 
Yeah, it was very convenient that we watched that um, right around Parshat Noah. Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, I'm not I'm not sure that it was telling us anything, but I think that it worked very well with our with our Torah calendar to be watching the episode at the same time and reading that into it. Um, yeah, I never thought this is my second time watching the series, but I never thought that that it that the goat dying meant anything about the baby god forbid but um uh but i guess the rainbow could have been a sign that that in fact Rabbi Parnik was wrong and everything was gonna be okay i don't know i don't know um karen i am curious what you mean by this comment we're going to have some sharing or mentioning of closure for our loss of our strugim friends what does that mean <laughs> meaning because the our the series is coming to an end it means we still have another episode for oh. over a year, oh, I see. we all have been together with some friends who are in their 20s and 30s, yeah. going through their life and having to focus, having to focus on the halacha of the series, yeah. as opposed to what I'm sure Michael would like to talk about, his yeah. feelings about the characters and especially Nati. Yeah, okay. yeah. And so now we will be ending that experience, which I assume has evoked emotions in uh-huh. those watching. Gotcha. So I was wondering if we're just going to do a little, I yeah. don't know what it would be called. We definitely are. So next week, um, whether or not Rai Parnik knows this, next week we're going to begin at 6, um, which is 8 p.m. for all of you. In- oh, oh, 6 your time. Correct. But remember, I'm off in another time zone from the rest of you, just to be clear. Okay. That, yeah, exactly. So that's why I said six for us, then eight and, or I guess for nine for you, Michael. Um, and then we will go a little bit longer next week um, to be able to, to do exactly what you're describing, Karen, and kind of do a little bit of a seum at the end of this to be able to discuss the characters and where to go from here um, in our journey. Okay. And... And the one thing that I'll plug, because Leah Mandelbaum is coming to town this week, is that, um, yes, we are saying goodbye to Strugim, for sure. Uh, like, the show, it's ending. Uh, but we... I mean, it really ended a few years ago. But... Thank you. You are always very helpful. Um, but the Temple Betham is going to the south, and the first place that we're going, for the most amount of days, actually, is New Orleans. So... We are hopeful that we will see everybody who's part of the class um, as uh, as part of our trip. And we're we're planning different activities and events, one where Rabbi Pernick and I will teach, another where Rabbi Silver and I will teach um, on Shabbat so that we can all... And that's all- going to be in March? Yes, March 17th through 26th, 7th, 8th, something like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So next um, week at 6? Next week at 6, yes. Which is eight. Which is eight yeah. or nine. <laughs> or nine. Or seven. Which means we, which means we need friends. to start a little bit earlier in New yeah. Orleans. Yeah, so I'll probably do a brief, a briefer uh, mini class beforehand. Right. Okay. Um, okay, any other thoughts on this episode since we just had a little bit of a... Uh, Someone else is about to say something before also. I forget who. No? I just, I have to say about Nati... He was at his full terrible twos when he's with the goats by himself and he's been left there alone. And 
you know, it's like he's angry at the world. Truth, truthfully, he's angry at, at Tila. But I don't know. I think it was good for him to have those tantrums. <laughs> but it just shows, it seems to me how unadult he is. He's just this little child who wants his way. And he's going to, you know, stomp and scream until he gets it. And I know we've all had those periods <laughs> where we've done that. It just, it, like at some point, you know, we think he's growing and then he relapses. Um, and um, although I was thinking about, did he have not a, a double motive, but did he get part of the way there, <clears throat> part of the way in Rehut's car and then, think oh my gosh it's gonna start raining and you know I should maybe go back and be with her so that she's not alone there so I thought he might have had a second thought about that after he left right, Bernie, thoughts um I mean I think I, I found his sort of development interesting there right he's going to his father and giving his father like the parochet and he's clearly in like full terrible two mode and then he like goes to a mirror and is kind of still in that mode but he's actually doing something that's helpful and he actually ends up staying with the goats which is helpful so that Amir can leave like so and he like sleeps on the couch and I feel like I don't know to me it's actually kind of a nice moment where it's sort of like well I'm in a terrible mood and I'm really upset and angry but like I'm actually being productive and helpful right now as my friend's wife is having a baby so he can be there so um He's certainly like an immature, you know, character, but it's like, even in his immaturity, he actually ends up helping rather than just being like, no, I'm done. So that was a nice thing, I thought. I, yeah, I think that he actually grows up in that moment. I think that he recognizes that he needs to do something outside of himself, um, and take care of his friend and, and, you know, he, he loved, he, well, we never heard that him say that he loved Yifat, but he and Yifat definitely have a special connection. Um, so I think par- that's, it's partially that. Um, but, but also he recognizes that I think with, you know, part of the reason he was so angry about tequila is because that was something he wanted for himself. And now he's allowing his friend to also get that. So I, maybe I'm being a little bit more optimistic about Nati as a character, but I, I saw that as kind of a character shift for him in terms of, I can't have this. Yes. I'm having a tantrum about it, but now I recognize that it's actually really important to me. And I see that it's important to my friend and I have to make sure he gets there. That was just, that was my take, but. I still think Nati was only, consistently interested in Tehila because he was living with Tehila's ex-boyfriend. I, I, I think that was, for him, that's like, ah, the forbidden fruit kind of, kind of deal. And so it's kind of... The best part about you thinking that is that everyone is shaking their heads no at you because there's just no way... No one else is on my team. No one else agrees. There's going to be someone listening on the podcast who's going to be like, yes, I agree. So. Yeah, like bro, like your dad. Like I no one agrees. No one agrees. Okay, Karen. No way, Rabbi Pernick, but that's what I wanted to say, actually. I thought this was kind of um 
I mean, it was a little too overkill, but very symbolically, the rainbow, the burying of a little goat, the birth of a little person, everybody's winding up kind of in a life. We don't have to worry, even though the season is over. We don't have to, you know what I mean? It just sort of tried to fix things a little. And Natien Rayut? I don't know. Natien Rayut? Really? No, well, didn't you, at the end, they come back, they're sitting in the car, whatever they're doing, but it's kind of nice chit-chat a little, I don't know, I'm just saying. It reminds me of, it reminds me of when Friends ended, which I didn't watch, like, in the year it aired, I was, I was too young, but um, when I watched Friends in the past, um, I remember when I watched the last episode for the first time, and I remember thinking, you know, the, the few episodes before the whole show ended, thinking the same thing um, of, oh, those two characters are still single, so maybe they'll get together. So maybe it's possible. I think that, but, but I do think that you're right that there are, um, we're kind of trying to tie up in these nice bows, all of these character lines uh, and, and where everybody's going to be and where everyone's going to settle uh, because the show's about to end. And so we are getting certain elements of that in, in each one of these um Character developments by the I end. I also thought that Yifat was a little bit more enamored with... Amir? Uh, yes. And that he was finding his place in creating. Yeah. Which he's a super soul, wonderful guy. Yeah. And the making of the thing and, you know, the whole combo of the pair and the baby. Sure. Really nice. Yeah. Really nice. Yeah. yeah, but but Farood and Nadi both. It really does end very abruptly. Okay. Well, we, yeah. I mean, we haven't ended yet, so we'll see. We'll see how things end next week. But um, but yes. I mean, we don't we don't yet know what what comes of their characters. Um, given kind of the heartbreak and Ryu, just the loneliness uh, that she's feeling in general. Um, I just want the people who are gonna listening on the podcast to know, to know that Norm agreed with me. Yeah, he just wrote that because he wants to be nice. <laughs> Actually. It oh, should be known God. for people who are listening later. Norm. Oh, God, Norm. Norm is <laughs> trying to be nice because you were all alone in your opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, you needed a friend. <laughs> uh, are there any other thoughts, questions, comments? Okay. Um, it is really nice. I know that my internet was weird at the beginning, but it is really nice to see all of you. And, um, I'll just say that we, we here in California, as Ryan Pernick and I have now spoken about many times, um, we're, we're very concerned about everything going on weather wise when we were supposed to end this class and are very glad that, um, it at least seems on this end that people are safe and doing fine post the hurricane. Um, and for those of you who go to Rabbi Silver's shul and were literally with us physically at Temple Beth Am for Rosh Hashanah, it was really amazing to be able to house your community. We, oh, I, that. I can explain that later. Um, oh, it was lovely to be able to house the community uh, for that and to, to feel that this class really in a lot of ways has just formed lovely bonds um, of friendship and community. And we're excited to be able to reciprocate that when, they, when we come to New Orleans in March. So uh just want uh, we're not ending we'll end next week but i just want to say that since this is our first time back since the hurricane and uh have a great week shabbat shalom um hope to see some of you at our my parsha class on friday 
and uh, others of you next week as we finish the class. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.